At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, this month, our, our series of messages and the devotionals and everything are centered around this idea of the gift. And we think of the gift, we think of ultimately that Jesus is the gift. That out of his grace that Jesus has given us a relationship with God, he's given us forgiveness of our sins. Uh, the book of Ephesians tell us that through Christ we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. John chapter 1, through Jesus he has given us grace upon grace, gift after gift. And so when we think of Jesus at Christmas time, we certainly think of gifts. And that idea is reinforced even as culturally we celebrate Christmas. Because there are a number of gifts that are exchanged at Christmas time that are a part of our regular celebration of this holiday. And that's appropriate. Now, as Americans, we may go a little overboard on that idea. I saw one statistic that said that last year Americans spent a trillion dollars on Christmas. A trillion dollars. Now, that's a lot of money. And here is something that I think you would agree with me on. Most of those gifts went to someone else, right? I mean, I'm guessing that none of you in this room got a trillion dollars worth of gifts last year. The vast majority of the gifts that were purchased last year for Christmas were given to someone else. And so that ought to cause us to ask the question, if Jesus is the gift, how do we know that that gift is for us? Now, when I think about that, I'm, I'm reminded of the way I know that other Christmas gifts are for me. You know, at Christmas time, we, we buy all these presents, and after we wrap them, we place them under a tree, and we put a little tag on each gift, and next to the two statement, whosever name is written there, that's who gets to open that present. It's to someone. If my name is there, then that present is for me. If my name is not there, that present is for someone else. And Having that as a picture is helpful for us as we think about the Christmas account in the Old and the New Testament. What we see in the Bible is we see a tag that surrounds the Christmas gift of Jesus and reminds us that that gift is in fact for you and for me. But rather than just saying it in that general term, the story around Jesus' birth as it's prophesied in the Old and revealed in the New Testament is revealed in such a way to let us know that all of us, regardless of how we would identify ourselves this year, can know and rest that the gift of Christ is for us. As we kick off this series today, we're going to be looking specifically at a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And in those verses, we're going to see that the gift of Jesus is for those who would consider themselves distressed. How many of you are feeling a little stressed? Forget the diss. How many of you feel a little stress today in this season? Guess what? The Christmas gift of Jesus is for us. And if you're beyond stress, if you're all the way to distress, guess what? It's for us as well. I want us to look at these nine verses today from Isaiah's prophecy that came 700 years before Jesus' birth, but talked about what Jesus would accomplish as we're encouraged by these verses today. So if you've got a Bible, take it out and turn to Isaiah chapter 11. 
I want to read the first nine verses, and then we're going to back up and make three observations today about it. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, Isaiah writes and says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Now, friends, in these nine verses, we're going to see three things today that help us understand that the gift of Jesus is for all of us who feel distress today. Now, the first thing that we're going to see from these verses is this. Don't let your eyes deceive you. Don't let your eyes deceive you. Now, we see that idea anchored in the very first verse that I read, this idea that a shoot will come forth from the stump of Jesse. Now, in order for us to really understand why that statement is encouraging, we need to understand the full context of Isaiah chapter 11. Because when I just say that, now some of you have grown up in the church, you have heard these verses read every Christmas, and when I say there is a shoot that will come from Jesse's stump, you go, yes, Jesus. You may have that on a plaque in your house someplace. But if you are unfamiliar with the Scriptures or, or you've never really thought about it, you're like, actually, that doesn't do a whole lot for me, right? Shoots from stumps typically do not excite me all that much. I mean, why is this statement something that I am to revere? Why is this statement something that is to give me hope? Why is this statement something that lets me know that if I'm distressed, this gift is for me? Well, in order to understand that, we really need to look at the full context of Isaiah chapter 11. And we need to look back at the things that immediately preceded it in what Isaiah was saying. See, Isaiah prophesied at a very turbulent time in the nation of Israel. Israel at that time had split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And the leaders of those nations had led them away from God in following idols and with all kinds of problems in the way that they were relating in the world. Because they had violated the covenant that God had made with them, the way the Old Testament covenant worked, God was going to discipline them or punish them. We see this in the context of what we see in Isaiah. In, in chapter 9, Isaiah says of the leaders of Israel and of Judah, he says, for those who guide this people have been leading them astray. 
In other words, the, the kings, the leaders of the nation, are not leading them to follow God. They're leading them away from God. It, not only were they leading them to, to worship idols, but ultimately it was messing up their relationships and the way they treated one another as well. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2 says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, to turn aside from the needy, from justice, and to rob the poor of my people of their right. In other words, the leaders of the nation of Israel were not just breaking fellowship with God, but they were exploiting the poor that lived inside of their country and not living consistent with God's ways in the way that they related to one another. So because of these problems, God was going to discipline the nation of Israel and Judah. The way that God was going to discipline them, as he often did in Old Testament times, was through an invading army. And so unbeknownst to the Assyrians, God raises up the Assyrians and has them come in to discipline his people. But what we see later in chapter 10 is that after the Assyrians come in and, and, and lay waste to Israel and, and do damage to the nation of Judah, the king of Assyria gets somewhat arrogant about his position, and God is aware of that. Isaiah 10, 12 says, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. In other words, the king of Assyria thought that he had won a great victory over Israel. That was his idea. That was his army. But really, it was God who was using Assyria to discipline his people. And God said, just as I disciplined Israel, just as I am disciplining Judah, so I will discipline the nation of Assyria and deal with them as well. Because it was God who was wielding the axe, Assyria was just the axe. And Isaiah 10, 15 says, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? The answer to that is no. And so God is going to judge Israel, God is going to judge Judah, and then ultimately God will judge Assyria as well. And as God judges all of those nations, there's a picture for the way that God will deal with them. And that picture is described for us in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. It says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. You see what the picture is? These nations, Assyria, Israel, Judah, thought that they were a mighty tree. They were independent of God, and God judges them and like a lumberjack with an axe chops them down to a stump. So that when Isaiah is writing his prophecy, his, the people of God are, are looking around and they see stumps left and right. What did the people see? What did Isaiah see? He saw a nation that had bad leadership. He saw the coming judgment of God in the form of the discipline through the Assyrians. He saw an exile that was looming a hundred years later when the nation would be carted off, the best and brightest, like Daniel and his friends, to Babylon. And what he saw was a stump of a nation. Now, when you think about that picture of what Isaiah saw 
in what his prophecy predicted? What emotion comes up inside of you? How do you feel? Well, my guess is you probably feel a little cold, a little distant, and a little depressed. Because one thing I know is that stumps do not inspire optimism, right? As a group of people who are living on this side of an October ice storm, we know that stumps do not inspire optimism. As I'm on Nextdoor, you know the little neighborhood sharing app? One of the things about Nextdoor is you get to really know what your neighbors are really like, right, and what they're really thinking. Um, but one of the things that happens on next door is, is people are talking about the trucks that are coming to remove the stumps from different neighborhoods. And when they talk about it, they talk about it like the ice cream truck has just come to town. It's like the trucks are here, the trucks are here, the stumps are gone, the branches are leaving. Why are people so excited? Why are you so excited? Why are you irritated that they haven't come by your house yet? The reason's obvious. Stumps don't inspire optimism. They're dead and they're dying. And as Isaiah and the nation of Israel looked around, they saw what looked like a dead and dying dream, a dead and dying nation. Now, friends, it doesn't take a lot of imagination for us to think about what kind of world we're living in. How many of you are thinking, you don't raise your hand, but just how many of you are thinking that we live in a stumpy world right now? You're looking around and the city and the state and the nation and the world and your family and whether it's health or whether it's finances or whether it's relationships or whatever it is, you feel like you're looking around at a lot of stumps. And right now, as you look around at those stumps, there's not a lot of optimism that you're bringing with you in here this morning. You're just angry. You're frustrated because we're looking out with our eyes and what we're seeing is the same thing that Isaiah and the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah saw in the 700s. They saw a stumpy nation. But to a people who look out and see a stumpy nation, what does God say? God says, from one particular stump will come a shoot, and that shoot will eventually become a mighty tree. Which stump would this shoot come from? Well, he says it will come from the stump of Jesse. Now, what was he talking about? That a shoot would come from the stump of Jesse. Well, we know as we look at the unfolding of this prophecy, as we look at its connection with the New Testament, that this is a prophecy about Jesus who would eventually come, a descendant of Jesse who would eventually come and not only bring spiritual release for us, but would promise to one day come again and to reign over the earth forever and ever. From a stump would come a shoot that would become a tree. But let's not miss this phrase here about the stump or the shoot coming from the stump of Jesse. Does it surprise you at all that he says that the shoot would come from Jesse's stump? It surprises me a little bit. What, where, where would you, what do you think he would say? Whose name would you expect to be listed there? A shoot would come from whose stump? David's stump, right? That's what you'd expect. A shoot would come from David's stump. After all, David, Jesse's son, was the one who was king. David, Jesse's son, is the one that God gave a promise that one of his descendants would sit upon the throne forever and ever. Why does he say Jesse's stump and not David's stump? 
I think the reason why he says that is because he wants to connect us back to the encounter when the Lord selected David. You remember that account? Saul was king. Saul was disobedient. God says, I'm done with Saul, and I'm going to appoint my king. And so he sends Samuel the prophet into uh, this town of Bethlehem, and he sends them to to, uh, Jesse's house. And Jesse gathers his sons and parades them in front of the prophet. And Samuel is supposed to anoint the one who was to be king. Jesse had selected all of his young or older and stronger sons, and he lines them up. and And Jesse goes before, or, or Samuel goes before each one, and the Lord says, "No, no, 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 no." So Samuel might have been confused. So the Lord speaks to him, and First Samuel sixteen seven, and says, "The Lord God said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, for the Lord sees not as man sees." Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, David was selected. And when David stood before Samuel the prophet, he looked just like a little bit of a shoot. But that was the one that the Lord would use. Connecting to that, I I, I think that we also remember that David did not immediately ascend to that throne but would live a good portion of the next several years on the run in a life that looked like defeat and not victory. But all this is set up to remind us not just of Jesse and David, but to remind us of Jesus. Because when Jesus came, he did not look like a David who was king. He looked like Jesse's youngest son. He was just a shoot, not the one that people would have thought, just a baby crying in a manger. But from that shoot, connected to the root of God's plan, would come a tree that would bring blessing and provision and protection for all who would trust in him. Our eyes might look on the pages of history and see Jesus just as another man. But don't let your eyes deceive you, friends. The shoot becomes a tree. Even during Jesus' earthly life, he did not live in such an opulent fashion that people would think of him as a king. He lived actually a very Spartan life. And Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, he says this, he says, and, and Jesus went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, what did it mean to be from Nazareth? What it meant to be from Nazareth was just some old hillbilly guy, right? Not someone who would command respect, Matter of fact, Jesus' peers would, would look upon him and say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, to be from Nazareth was, was no big deal. That was not the big city. That was not a fancy family. And yet Jesus would be from Nazareth. But the question then is, well, what prophet said that Jesus would be a Nazarene? And if you look in the Old Testament, you don't see directly a statement that Jesus would be from the town of Nazareth. But what you do see is that in chapter 11, verse 1, 
that Jesus would be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The Hebrew word shoot is this little word, nazer. Jesus would be the insignificant guy from the small town who would begin his life like a shoot, but would eventually become the tree. And for those of us who live in a world of stumps, may our eyes not deceive us into thinking that God is not in control. May our eyes not deceive us that things have spun out of control. May our eyes not deceive us thinking that Jesus is not really going to come back again. But this morning as we gather, may we be encouraged by the fact that though we live in a stumpy world, there is a shoot that will come and will bring deliverance for us. And so we gather today awaiting his return. The first thing that we see from these verses is to not let our eyes deceive us. But a second thing I think we need to see here is found in verses 2 through 5. And that is this idea that his eyes are not deceived. Our eyes can be deceived, but friends, his eyes are never deceived. After talking about this shoot that would come from the stump of Jesse, we get a description of Jesus as he will be reigning over the earth upon the day of his return. And what we see of the description of his, his reign is that he is not a leader like any other leader that you and I have ever seen. He is far superior. He is way better. You see, the leaders that we know in this world, most of them have ulterior motives, right? Now, I'm not questioning every action, but leaders from leaders in government to leaders in business to leaders in churches, all over the place, right? Because we are fallen and sinful people, decisions run through personal grids, and leaders can seek to exploit their position for their own benefit to the detriment of those that they are leading. This is something that can happen in all different environments. But what we see in these verses is that when Jesus comes back, we will finally have a leader who will not exploit his people. We will finally have a leader who leads always in faithfulness and righteousness and according to justice. It will happen in Christ and it will happen as he leads upon this earth in his kingdom. We see in verse 2 this description of him. The way that he will pull that off is by living consistent with the Spirit's power. You know, earlier as we began the worship service today, I read from Isaiah chapter 9 as it talked about the government will be on his shoulders and he is mighty God and everlasting Father. That's a passage that talked about the divinity of Jesus. But in the verses we're getting ready to look at, we see not just the divinity of Jesus, but also his humanity highlighted. Because as Jesus comes to this earth, he lives his life in full connection and harmony with all of the members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look at what it says in verse 2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Though God in the flesh, he, he does not run his own way, but he lives consistent and dependent upon the Spirit's power to do the will of his heavenly Father. And as he meddies out justice upon the earth, he will do so with a spirit of wisdom and of understanding. Friends, if you have ever led anything you know that there are times and situations and circumstances that outkick your coverage. 
where you're facing dilemmas and dynamics that are beyond your control and even at times beyond your understanding. But that will never happen with Jesus. He's the one who created all things. He has all wisdom. Not only does he have all wisdom, but he has all understanding. And when he establishes his kingdom upon the earth, he's going to dole out that justice and that wisdom and that understanding upon the earth. He will lead according to counsel and might with a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He delights in God's way happening right here upon the earth. That's what we have to look forward to in Christ's return. What he says next, I think, though, is a section that may be a little bit confusing because it says that he, being Jesus, shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Now, when you first see that phrase, it might be a little confusing because it might draw in your mind a picture of God standing before you with his eyes closed and his fingers in his ears going, I don't need to listen to you. I don't need to listen to you. I don't need to listen to you because he just wants to harm you in some way or or mistreat you in some way. That's not the idea that is referenced here. What is meant by saying that He does not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear is that God can't be talked into anything. There's no slick lawyer who's going to talk God off the cliff. There's no blog post, no argument that he hasn't seen or that will trip him up. There's no piece of information that's going to break tomorrow that will change his will and his direction. He's steady, and he's sure, and he is always going to lead on the basis of his righteousness and his justice. With righteousness, it says, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. I love that phrase because we live in a world where the poor and the meek don't always get a fair shake, do they? Those with more resources get a better lawyer. They make a better argument. They file more injunctions. They get a shorter sentence. Or maybe I'm just watching too much Dateline. Whatever it is, right? We're we're familiar with the concept. It's even more so in an era that was led by personality and not by constitution and by law. Long comes Jesus, and he's not a God who will be swayed by the best argument, but he's the God who will always medi out righteousness and justice, and it doesn't matter who you are, rich or poor, you'll get a fair shake before him. You know, some have perverted the concept of biblical justice to mean that everybody gets the same thing in terms of outcomes. It's not what the passage says. It's not that everybody gets the same outcome. It's that everybody has a fair shake. That's the promise of life under the rule of Jesus Christ. We'll all get a fair shake before him. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He's not going to lead on the basis of the best argument. He's not going to be talked into anything, but he's going to lead on the basis of his righteousness and justice. Now, friends, as we reflect on that and as we think on that, I think there's two responses that ought to well up inside of us. At one point, at one level, 
we ought to be encouraged. We have to be encouraged that there is one who is coming who is really going to bring justice to this earth. Whatever injustice has got you up in arms, that's keeping you up late at night, that is disturbing your soul this morning, know that Jesus will take care of that upon his return. So we can be settled in that. We can be encouraged in that. We can have hope in that. But our response to this idea should be something beyond just being hopeful. It also should make us a bit terrified. It should make us terrified to know that no one will talk God into anything. Because let's be honest, there are some of us in the room today that are hoping we can talk our way into His presence one day. We're hopeful that we'll be able to just talk our ways, to say, you know, I, I, was, I was better than this person, or I was better than that person, or I did these good things, or I did those good things. And we, we try to lay before God some case based on our argumentation or our personal lives that we have lived, thinking that we'll somehow persuade God to accept us into His presence. But friends, that's not the way it works. Our arguments won't win the day. God's standard is righteousness. His standard is holiness. And the challenge is that as God looks at our lives, He's going to find something less than that. And we won't be able to talk our way out of it. Now, for those of us who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, what we know and believe is that though those things would be seen and exposed and known, we are forgiven because the argument before God is not us making an argument to Him, it's, it's Him taking care of the punishment that our sin deserves by providing Jesus' death on the cross for us. But if you are here today and you have never trusted in Christ, then there's a terrifying reality awaiting you that one day you would stand before God and you won't be able to talk Him into anything unless you are trusting in Christ and His work. You know, I think about the temptation that so many of us have to, to think that our argument will work or our rationale will convince God of something. Uh, and I think back to something that happened right after I began to follow Christ. I was in high school, and after trusting in Christ, I, I began to uh, read Scripture as a part of a group that met on Wednesday nights at our church. And as we were reading through Scripture, we, we came to this idea of fasting. And so for my very first Easter, after trusting in Christ, my friends get together and we decide that we're going to fast on Good Friday, that we were going to not eat breakfast and we were not going to eat lunch, but then we were going to gather after the Good Friday service and celebrate a meal together in the evening. Now, that that sounds very spiritual, but let me tell you what my 11th grade brain did with that. I decided, well, you know what? I've got this covered. I'll stay up till 2 o'clock the night before. I'll sleep past breakfast and lunch. I'll wake up mid-afternoon, I'll go to the early Good Friday service, and I'll have dinner, I'll only have like three or four hours of hunger. Now, that was a brilliant idea in my mind. But here's the thing, is God impressed by my argument of how I'm able to accomplish these spiritual things? Absolutely not. Is God impressed that, that I can just scan my eyes across my Bible app so that I can check the box and say that I read that day? No, he's not. I'm so thankful, friends, that my salvation in 1990 
And my salvation in 2020 is not dependent upon my fasting or my faithfulness. It's dependent upon Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. God sees through our arguments. He sees through our facades. He sees through our self-righteousness. And he provides in its place Christ's righteousness. If you know Christ, rejoice in that today. If you don't know Christ, trust him today. By faith, where you sit, confess your sins. Accept his forgiveness. Because one day we will stand before him. And our arguments will not win the day. But Jesus will. Are we trusting in him? His eyes are not deceived. Well, don't let our eyes deceive us. His eyes are not deceived. But this passage concludes with a third movement. And that movement lets us know that our eyes will be amazed. Our eyes will be amazed. And we see this in verses 6 through 9. Now, these verses describe a reality that none of us have experienced. It's a reality that maybe you've only seen in a Disney movie, right? But it's a reality of a total transformation of the created order, where things that currently are at odds, things that currently you know, fight one another, things that currently eat other things, are going to live at peace with the things that they currently hunt. Now, biblical scholars have debated if this is just a a figure of speech, if this is just a a picture, an idea of the peace that will come when Christ establishes his kingdom upon the earth, or if this is an actual reality of the natural world during the kingdom reign of Jesus. I I fall in the the latter camp, but I think let's not quibble over that. Let's, Let's see the big picture here. The big picture is that with the return of Christ will come a transformation of this world into something far better than anything we have ever seen or experienced. Our eyes will be amazed. Wolves lying down with lambs, leopards with young goats, calves and lions and fattened calves are all together. They're they're not eating one another. And a little child who normally might be scared of those things will be able to lead them because the hostility in nature will be dealt with. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Nursing children playing over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. In other words, the things that currently terrify us in this world will be dealt with and set right and anew. And even beyond these things in the animal world, we're going to see a transformation of this world by Satan being done away with, sin being forgiven and done away with, us being given an upgraded new body that no longer struggles with sin and living a life where there are no longer any tears or pain or suffering. Friends, that's, that's where we're, we're headed if we know Christ. Our eyes will be amazed at that. And it will happen inside of a world where the knowledge of the Lord will cover this planet as the water covers the sea. Friends, there is such a hope when that shoot turns into the tree and brings righteousness and justice to this earth. Are we ready for that moment? 
I know I'm, I'm anticipating it, but am I ready for it? Am I living in that reality? Am I trusting in Christ today? Friends, we live in a world that is distressed. But to a distressed world comes the gift of Jesus. And if you today are feeling distressed, may your eyes not focus on the stumps, but may your eyes rest on the chute that was hung on the tree, but ultimately will be in full bloom. Are we trusting him today? This gift that will amaze our eyes is for you, from our Heavenly Father. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for just the privilege of opening your word and reading it today, just being encouraged by this, this truth of this passage. Father, I pray that there would not be a heart who is listening right now that is just clinging to their argument for their salvation. But Father, I pray that everyone would would rest in Jesus and His provision. You, the, the God who sees all, the God whose eyes are not deceived, can tell a counterfeit. But Jesus was no counterfeit. In His righteousness, you desire to give to us. So, Father, may every soul in this room trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and for our hope for eternity. And may we all experience the hope of that awe-inspiring future together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.